as you came in, the new sheets that you received um, have a talk outline in the middle, and if that helps you, please feel free to use it uh, as we go along. And if you have a Bible, please keep it open, because we're going to be referring to verses uh, from Habakkuk and elsewhere in the Bible. I'm going to pray for us. Gracious Father God, uh, I'm aware I am a flawed, weak and frail servant of yours, but I thank you that your word is powerful. Please help me not to get in the way of your word, but by the power of your spirit, please take your word and implant it deep in our hearts. Cut us to our hearts that we would turn to you, that we would praise your name, that we would trust you uh, even in the hardest times. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. How long, Lord, cries the wife in North Korea as her husband serves another year in labor camp for distributing Bibles. Why are you silent, Lord, cries the elderly man as his children sell his house from under him and move him into a nursing home. Why do you hide your face from me, God, cries the young mum diagnosed with breast cancer. Now, if you can relate to these cries, you can relate to the book of Habakkuk, a book written almost 3,000 years ago and yet still as relevant today as it was when it was written. Habakkuk addresses the, the questions that trouble our hearts, that churn away in our stomachs. How can God allow evil in the world? Why does God allow his people to suffer? Is God really in control when trial comes? And how should we relate to God when life sucks? Over the next four weeks, we'll be taking a break from Hebrews and we'll be working our way through the book of Habakkuk. Each week, we will look at a particular chapter. This week, chapter one, we're going to look at the God we can complain to. Next week, Habakkuk two, the God who silences. The week after Habakkuk three, the God who is my saviour. And we're going to spend a week looking at Habakkuk Chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous will live by faith. Well, firstly, though, we need to understand Habakkuk's world and Habakkuk's word. Habakkuk grew up in a time between two world superpowers. Just a couple of generations before him, the Assyrian Empire was the dominant superpower of the world. And Israel, the northern kingdom of God's people, had a long series of terrible kings, kings who led God's people away from God for a long time. And then the unthinkable happens. The Assyrian Empire defeats Israel, and God's people are exiled into a foreign land. But of course, all this happens under God's sovereign hand. God raised Assyria as a tool because he was punishing Israel for their sin against him. This is 1 Chronicles chapter 5. But they were unfaithful to the God of their ancestors and prostituted themselves to the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, that is Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, who took the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manasseh into exile. Now the prophet Habakkuk was from the southern kingdom, Judah, southern kingdom of God's people, and most likely uh, Habakkuk grew up under the reign of King Josiah, the last of Judah's good kings. And Josiah brought about good reforms in the land. He, he brought reforms that pointed people back to God. But all these reforms died with Josiah. 
And the kings that followed Josiah were wicked men. Wicked men who did much evil in the eyes of the Lord. And just like the kings of the northern kingdom provoked God's anger. And so Judah, having turned away from God, is an absolute mess. Meanwhile, outside of Judah, the Assyrian Empire is on the decline and on the horizon is the rise of another superpower, Babylon. Babylon rises to defeat Assyria and now what remains of God's people, the small nation of Judah, is on Babylon's radar. This is Habakkuk's world. Now we also need to understand Habakkuk's word, chapter 1, verse 1, the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. Now when you read the prophets of the Old Testament, one of the things you immediately see is that the prophets, they bring God's word to God's people. Now the book of Habakkuk is a bit different because the way it starts is the prophet's word to God. Now that doesn't diminish this any less as God's word. You know, like the book of Psalms, God gives us words that we can speak to him. And I think in part that is what the book of Habakkuk is, words from God that we can learn to speak to God. There's a dialogue between Habakkuk and God that is very real and very raw. It's like they're engaged in a wrestling match, a verbal wrestling match. Habakkuk pours his out his heart out to God in grief, complaining to God in anger, challenging God. Let's look at Habakkuk's first complaint. Chapter 1, verse 2. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Habakkuk looks at the state of his people, and it is a mess. All he sees is the triumph of evil. Wickedness and injustice are rife in the land. Destruction and violence are commonplace. There is widespread rejection of God. But not everyone is like that. There's a small minority. Habakkuk refers to them as the righteous in verse 4. But the problem is this minority, these righteous people, are suffering at the hands of the wicked majority. There is so much unrighteousness that Habakkuk feels that the law of God is not powerful to curb the behavior of the wicked. And like a pressure cooker, Habakkuk is building and building, and he reaches his breaking point, and it drives him to his knees to pray. How long, Lord? How long must we put up with this unrighteousness? Why? Why have you not listened and acted sooner? Why have you allowed sinful rebellion to plague the land? Why do you let the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? Why have you not saved your covenant people? Well, how is God going to respond? You're familiar with that expression, be careful what you ask for? Habakkuk has stepped into the wrestling ring with God and he thinks he's pinned God's arms down. God picks him up and drops him to the floor. Verse 5. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. 
Habakkuk believes that God is silent, that God is not acting, but God will act, just not in the way Habakkuk wants. Habakkuk wants God to deliver the righteous, but God's answer is the very opposite. God himself is going to raise the Babylonians and he's going to smash his own people. Babylon is the severe judgment against the sin of God's people. And and make no mistake, Babylon was terrifying. They're lawless, they're brutal, they're feared, they're dreaded. God uses a series of images to describe their military power. Their cavalry is swifter than leopards, fiercer than hungry wolves, as destructive as a swooping eagle. So vast is their might that even their prisoners are like tiny grains of sand. Babylon has all the weapons of mass destruction, that they laugh at kings, they mock cities, they worship their own strength, in fact. It's not exactly what Habakkuk wanted to hear. God's solution seems much worse than Habakkuk's problem. Let me pause this and and let me apply this. I'm going to ask you this question. Have you learned to lament like Habakkuk? You know, the Bible is full of honest cries of grief to God. Habakkuk is only one example. We read Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Here's another one, Psalm 6. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I'm worn out from groaning. And I could go on and on. There are many laments in the scriptures. In fact, about a third of the Psalms are laments. Now, to lament to God is to cry out honestly to God, to complain to him often with grief and anger, requesting God to act in line with his character and his power. To lament to God is an act of faith in God. You know, even when it seems that God is far away, to lament is to pursue God, to trust him, to act according to his revealed character. And the laments of Scripture are exercises in trusting God. Because as people lament to God, they grow in their relationship with God. They they move from grief to anger to being assured of God's presence with them. I don't think we're particularly good at lamenting in our culture, are we? In a culture that celebrates success, that shies away from suffering, we feel the need often to be on top of things, to say we're fine, even when we're not fine. I don't think we're particularly good at lamenting in our churches. Uh, The CCLI website is where we do all our church song copywriting reporting, and they, they make a collection of all the top songs that are being sung in all our churches in Australia. And I could not find one song of lament in the top 50 songs. And it's not real, is it? 
You know, often we are deeply anguished. We're, we're churning away inside with deep grief and anger. We feel frustrated by our own sin and the sin of others. And we come to church and we feel this need to put on a pretense. Everything's fine. We're told in the Bible to mourn with those who mourn. But truth be told, we're not great at that, are we? Often we don't know what to do with people's grief. But the truth is, God is more than capable to deal with your anger. God is more than capable to deal with your grief. At the very least, we need to learn to lament to God, to cry out to him. And I think the way we learn how to do this is to reflect on the prayers of Habakkuk, to meditate on the Psalms of lament, that we would learn the language of crying out to God. So that the next time you face the storm of suffering, you will be prepared to cry out to God. You see, the alternative to crying out to God is to grumble, isn't it? It's to cry out about God. You know, the Israelites in the Old Testament were very good at running to to Moses, to Aaron, and to grumble, to complain about God, to say how terrible he is. That is not lamenting. That's just having a good whinge. It's a lack of faith. And their grumbling brought about God's judgment on them. Uh, we have to be careful not to be grumblers. So, so the next time, I'm giving you permission here, the next time I come to you and grumble about God and grumble about my situation, this is what you are say, to say to me. Have you prayed about the situation? If not, let's pray, let's pray right now. I'm going to say the same thing to you when you come and grumble to me. Have you prayed? Let's pray right now. Now Habakkuk is not finished with God yet. Round one goes to God. Our persistent prophet picks himself up the floor and he gets ready for the next round. Here is Habakkuk's complaint number two. Verse 12. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my holy one, you will never die. You, Lord have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Habakkuk begins this complaint by testing God's character. And it goes something like this. God, you're holy. You're pure. You're righteous. You cannot tolerate evil of any kind. How then can you possibly condone using the wicked Babylonians? But you know, if you read the scriptures, the righteous God is often using unrighteous means to achieve his purposes. You know, God can raise a Pharaoh for the purpose of judging Pharaoh and saving his people to show his power. God can use the wicked actions of Joseph's brothers to save his people from famine. In the book of Judges, God can use the the idolatrous nations around Israel to turn his people back to him in repentance and faith. God is sovereign over all things, even evil, and yet he is not to be blamed for the evil of people's choices. Now, Habakkuk also complains about the fairness of the situation. God, how could you use the Babylonians to judge God's people? 
You know, in Habakkuk's opinion, the people of Judah were more righteous than the Babylonians. It seems unfair to Habakkuk. You know, it's like when we cry, God, why do you allow bad things to happen to good people? And why do you allow good things to happen to bad people? In other words, like Habakkuk, we want to be the judge, don't we? We want to determine who gets what. Now Habakkuk continues his complaint in verse 14. Habakkuk paints a a chaotic situation. God has allowed this chaos to happen. The people of Judah are like defenseless fish in the sea, and and Babylon is like this self-absorbed giant fisherman dragging in the weaker nations like Judah in his net, living off the spoils of his net, going so far as to worship the power of his net as his idol. And so for Habakkuk, the thought is horrifying. How could God possibly allow such idolatry to happen under his watch? You know, all of this, according to Habakkuk, should be an affront to God's character. And he should, at the very least, do something, but at the very least, say something about this situation. And so Habakkuk ends this round of complaint. He heads back to the corner of his ring and he waits for the next round. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Here's the second application. Will you allow God to be God? You know, it is a good thing to cry out to God. It is good to lament to him, to pour out anger and grief in honest prayer. But we must allow God to be God. You see, we won't always get God right when we lament. That great book of lament, you know, the book of Job. At the end of the book of Job, Job is crying out to God. And in the end, he realizes who he is complaining to. You know, Job is a creature, and he's crying out to the sovereign creator. And at the end of the book, God reminds Job of who God is. Job 40, verse 6, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor. Clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Who is God, Job? I'm God. You're not. When God says this to Job, he realizes that he didn't get God right. Habakkuk doesn't always get get God right in his complaint. You know, if Habakkuk has his way, You know, God will be much more limited than the God of the Bible. According to Habakkuk, a holy God can only use righteous means. 
then what of the cross of Christ? You know, the cross is the most evil act in history where wicked people, because of their sin, drove themselves to crucify the most righteous, the most wonderful person who ever lived. And on that cross, Jesus cries out to God in lament, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for his disciples and for those watching, it appears that God is silent. And yet we know that God was in control of the darkest hour in humanity to bring the brightest hope for humanity. As Jesus cried in anguish, he was drinking the cup of God's judgment for all our sin on the cross. He was experiencing all the God-forsakenness that we ought to deserve. And Jesus' lament using the words of Psalm 22 was also a cry of trust in God. For God was fulfilling the entire psalm in Jesus' death on the cross. And God responded to Jesus' cries by vindicating that trust, by raising Jesus from the dead and triumphing over sin and death as God's anointed king. The Apostle Peter summarizes all of this in Acts chapter 2 as he preaches to the very people who killed Jesus. Verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Do you get that? God in all his sovereignty was in control of the most evil act in history and yet it was you, you wicked sinners, you were responsible for nailing the nails in Jesus' hands and God used the most unrighteous act to confirm Jesus as Lord and to save sinful humanity. Friends, this is your God. This is the God you lament to. When I was a ministry trainee at this church many years ago, Theo Fishwick was one of my trainers. Theo attends our congregation, he's a member here. Theo's a retired pastor and Theo was the chaplain at the Royal Children's Hospital for nine years. And Theo was teaching Gary and I, another trainee, uh, one afternoon about pastoral care and evangelism and he taught us to ask thoughtful questions. He taught us to listen well when people grieve. He taught us to trust God, that God would take us somewhere in these conversations, not to force them where we wanted them to go. And Theo shared that in his ministry often parents would ask him this question, why did God allow this to happen to my child? You know, at the time, I, I could not have imagined a worse question to be asked. I, I would never want a question like that. But Theo said, you see, whether the parents realized that or not, that was a statement of God's sovereignty, isn't it? God is in control. And that is something to work with. 
God is all-powerful. God is in control of all things. The raising of a superpower, the falling of a sparrow, the sickness of a child, the death of the Son of God. God is in control, often in ways we don't understand. God is working, often in ways we do not see. The question is, Will you allow God to be God? You see, the alternative is hopeless. A few years ago, I went to visit an elderly lady in a nursing home. I'll call her Joan. I asked Joan before she died whether she wanted me to read the Bible to her, and she said no, she didn't. Many years earlier, some teenagers stole a car and crashed it into the car that Joan's son was driving, and Joan's son was killed as he was on his way to see his newborn baby at the hospital. And the way that Joan dealt with her grief was to put God in a small box. Joan could not believe that God would allow such a thing to happen, and so Joan's God was very limited. God was kept in the confines of the church she attended every Sunday. She never opened her Bible. She never allowed God to be her God in her suffering. And so Joan's God could never help her because he was not sovereign. And so she could never turn to him for help. And so she had no hope. When I asked her how she felt about dying, she said, I'm lost. Don't be like Joan. Cry out to God. Please cry out to him, but let him be God. Here's the last one. Will you allow God to change you and not just your situation? Now, when Habakkuk complains to God, he wants God to change the situation. He wants the situation to be favorable to his people, which is why Habakkuk is so shocked that God is going to make things worse. Now, over the following weeks, we're going to follow Habakkuk's journey with God because Habakkuk is going to end up in a very different place to where he is today. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read novels, I sneak to the last page of the book. It's not great, is it, to do that, but I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to sneak to the last page. This is Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crops fail, the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. By the end of the book, it's apparent that nothing in Habakkuk's situation has changed. God is still going to raise the Babylonians. God's city, Jerusalem, will fall. God's people will be exiled to Babylon and there will be desolation. And Habakkuk will suffer the grief of all this unfolding before his eyes. And what is Habakkuk's response? I will rejoice in the Lord. God has changed Habakkuk, but not his situation. You know, often when we suffer, we feel that God is not acting in our good. If God really loved us, he would change our situation. He would take away the pain. He would 
bring about the good that we long for, to be happy. But what if God was more wise, more loving, more powerful than that? What if God was determined to act for our good? And what if that good was to change us and not our situation? Let me leave you with that. Come back next week, follow Habakkuk's journey, learn to lament, allow God to be God, trust him to change you. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father God, I give you thanks that you are real, that you want us to be real with you. Thank you that you're big enough to handle our grief, our anger, our frustration. Please, Father, help us to lament to you. Help us not to shy away from you when we suffer, but to turn to you, to trust you, to cry out to you even when we don't understand what you're doing. Gracious Father God, we thank you that you are powerful that you are God and not us, that you are doing things beyond our understanding, for you were the one. You were the one who brought your son into this world, that sinful, wicked people like us meant that he died on the cross, and yet you could use that same cross to save us from sin and death. We praise you for that. Help us, Father, in our grief to trust that you are the God who controls each of our days and please change us to make us more like your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.